people were sitting, propped up or lying, obviously with some fractures. Um, some people with blood-stained clothes. Uh, some people obviously in quite a lot of pain. There were people with bandages already on. As this unfolded, we were, um, Nat and I think looked at each other and went, Ooh, this is really going to be a lot of work. It's the centre of all sections of the child where there's a lot of people reacting in. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Today's episode is about a part of the Kimberley Coast in Western Australia, known as Garangadam by the traditional owners and called Horizontal Falls or nicknamed the Horries in the typical way Aussies shorten the names of everything. It's about 250 kilometres northeast of Broome and Perth is almost 2,000 kilometres to the south. There is no, I repeat, no access by road. The only way to get to this remote part of the coastline is by seaplane or boat. The Horizontal Falls have been described by David Attenborough as one of the greatest wonders of the natural world. The falls form when seawater rushes through these two short, narrow gorges that are about 300 metres apart from each other. And this creates a waterfall that runs horizontally, but up to four metres high. With each change of the tide, the direction of the falls reverses from inflow to outflow and back again. It is remarkable and many people travel to this remote part of the country to see it. Boats are able to travel through the gap and thrill-seeking tourists are catered to by several tourism companies. On May 27, 2022, a tourism company was conducting a tour of the Horizontal Falls when the boat ran into trouble with 26 passengers and two crew on board. The vessel collided with a rock wall and more than a dozen tourists were left with critical injuries. The retrieval of some 26 patients was a complicated and challenging situation, given the remote location, with no telephone reception, no access roads, the presence of sharks and crocodiles in the water, and more. Sally Edmonds was one of the RFDS doctors who attended that day. Hello, Sally. Hi, Lana. Before we dive into this story, you've worked for the RFDS for almost 30 years. Uh, when did you join us and what led you to decide to join the service? Gosh, it's such a long time ago that I started, it's hard to remember the reasons why. I'd heard of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'd been lucky enough to do a student placement when I was in um, Kalgoorlie. So I, I came into it in 1995, having done a lot of work over in the UK and just shortly before I started my training as a GP. Fantastic. And have you been to Horizontal Falls before? Yeah, I was lucky enough uh, last year to go on a Kimberley cruise. It's something I've wanted to do for a long, long time. And we stopped and uh, went on the Horizontal Falls uh, 
uh, boat ride. Can you explain, since you've been on it, I haven't been on it, what is it like to be on a, a boat that's going through that fast moving water? Oh, it's just quite an exciting boat, boat ride. Uh, we're in a really spectacular uh, setting. There are a lot of islands, bright blue water, dark red cliffs, um, big rocks, and then the water, the way that it comes through the narrow gap there, creates all sorts of currents and uh, quite spectacular white water through there. And so you sit on a boat of about uh, 30 passengers, uh, an open boat, just like going on a, a great speedboat ride. Okay. So you you operate there in Broome uh, as part of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and you were on schedule or on shift back in May. Uh, could you tell me when you and the team first got the notification that there'd been an accident at Horizontal Falls? We started our day shifts at 6am and we were um, packed in with our aircraft uh, out to go to, I think it was Fitzroy Crossing, for a, a fairly urgent patient uh, who had been waiting overnight. Uh, we were about to go and then I had a call saying, I'd, I'd had a call just as I was driving out to the airport, so it was shortly before seven, um, saying, uh, heads up, it looks like there's been something at the Horizontal Falls standby. So as soon as I got to the base, uh, we then get a, got a call with some more details. And if I can remember rightly, the, um, the initial call was actually really accurate to what happened in the end. They said it was a call through from one of the Horizontal Falls uh, operators in Broome. Uh, so they weren't at the site, but they said, look, there's been, uh, there's been a, an accident on the boat. There are multiple people with fractures. Quite a few are walking. Nobody unconscious and no one had fallen in the water. That's good news, isn't it? Because I, I understand that there's quite some sharks and crocodiles and that sort of thing there in that region. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the things when you go out to the Horizontal Falls is to have a look over the edges um, of the pontoon and sometimes there'll be sharks there and everybody's aware of crops in the area. But we were very aware that they were in, you know, people with fractures in a really remote location and a lot of people. So we knew from straight on that uh, we were going to have our work cut out for us that day. So what happens? So you're there at the base and you have all this information. Broome to um, Horizontal Falls is is the closest base to that location. Does that mean that you knew you, you would be the first there to be able to provide assistance? Yeah, absolutely. So we're definitely the closest, but not so very close. If we just got going and then met the seaplane there, we would get to the pontoon a bit quicker. Because we knew that it was very important that we got a couple of people out there to start stabilising. With the info we had, we knew that we could have a couple of people quite severely critically injured, uh, even though nobody was unconscious, but we wanted to get up there and uh, sort out what we could attend to urgent medical needs. Did they say what sort of critical injuries, we're talking about broken backs and, and that sort of thing, or necks or severe fractures, compound fractures, did they have any detail or was it just the numbers and the fact that there was a lot of broken bones? Just that there were a lot of people with broken bones. Possible spinal was one of the other uh, parts of information and we didn't have much information about how the um, accident had happened. So we really were just working on that. Uh, 20-something people injured, some with fractures. At the moment when that, when that word came through, I understand 
that a whole team of people down in Perth, which is thousands of kilometres away, a whole team of RFDS people there in the control centre were immediately starting to look at what resources were going to be needed because one plane was never going to be enough, was it? This is what we did. Um, our pilot Bryn started replanning to go to Kulin Island. My nurse Natalie started getting some gear together, particularly lots of, the, um, lots of extra pain relief, intravenous fluids, IV lines and things because they're usually uh, our aircraft is packed with enough equipment for maybe two to three patients. Never more than a dozen. I spoke to one of our senior coordinators and our senior uh, doctor on call to tell them this, the information that we had so far and what our plan was to get going up there. And I knew, um, because I've been working with the RFDS for a long time, that we have systems in place when there's a multi-casualty uh, incident that once you've told those initial people down in the head office that they'll be looking at how we can mobilise extra aircraft and teams uh, and also be looking at how to keep going with those other urgent patients uh, who are also in need of medical care right through the state. It's, it's an interesting thing when you have a, a major accident like this one with multiple patients, you can't lose sight of the fact that there's still the everyday traffic that just happens that has to be still catered for and looked after. So it's a bit of a juggling act really, isn't it? There's a whole process where the health department are also um, uh, put on alert and the local hospital as well. Actually, that was one other thing I did early on. So I spoke to the coordination centre, to the senior doctor, and I gave a quick call to Broome Hospital. I knew they would be notified in time but I thought it was worth a minute or two just giving them a heads up on the information that I knew. So, okay, so then you and Bryn and Natalie are heading out. You're the, the first on the way from the RFDS perspective to head out there. Where did you land? So we landed at Kulin Island. Kulin is a sizable island up there in the region and it's about 15 minutes flight from the pontoon next to the horizontal falls bearing in mind that that's the nearest uh, landing place for a fixed-wing aircraft. Kulin Island has a big mine, I think it's iron ore, and about three years ago they did a huge upgrade on their, on their runway uh, because they can fly their workers in and out from bigger centres. I think they fly direct from Perth uh, with jet-sized aircraft. Were there a lot of people when you landed? Was there like a, a large number of people gathering or was there already stuff happening to try to respond to the accident that was like a 15-minute flight away? Not a lot at that stage. So there was a seaplane from the Horizontal Falls uh, set up had come up to Coolan Island to meet us. Natalie and I, uh, with the help of the others, got a lot of gear onto the seaplane and basically got ourselves uh, with them across to the pontoon straight away. In the meantime, a second uh, RFDS PC-12 turboprop plane was coming up from Broome. When we initially got there, it was a, a quick uh, quick turnaround because Nat and I wanted to get out to the pontoon, see what the situation really looked like. So as you landed in that seaplane near the pontoon, could you describe that scene for us? Absolutely spectacular scenery and then landing on the water. That's the first time I'd ever been on a seaplane, so that was quite 
lovely, uh, albeit I had my heart in my mouth a little bit about what was going to be uh, happening uh, you know, after we landed. So we land on the water and then the seaplane motors up to the pontoon. Now the pontoon's a sizable thing. It's got accommodation for maybe 30 people or so on there. Um, so it's so, sort of hotel rooms. So we landed near the seating area where there were about 20 people sitting having their breakfast. So we made our way through there and then came out to the other side of the pontoon where the boat with the injured people on it was moored up alongside. And some of the staff there, um, they were very busy. They were treating people with whatever first aid measures they could. So it sort of unfolded like that. We could see the boat was moored up to the pontoon. They'd rigged up some shade. There were still um, probably about 15 people still on the, on the boat. So it's a big flat boat. Uh, it turned out quite a few of the seats had been cleared off and people were sitting propped up or lying, obviously with some fractures, um, some people with blood-stained clothes, uh, some people obviously in quite a lot of pain. Then there were quite a few people on the pontoon as well, which has a sort of um, an indoor-outdoor carpet, and they were um, either sitting on chairs or um, or lying on the floor with some improvised, um, you know, some mattresses and uh, pillows and things there. There were people with bandages already on. As this unfolded, we were, um, Nat and I think looked at each other and went, oh, this is really going to be a lot of work. Were they relieved to have you arrive? Yeah, so they, look, they'd done a lot already. They brought the boat back, they'd got some of the people off there. There was a group of other tourists there in the same operation. And amongst them were a few very useful helpers. I think there was, there was a nurse, there was a retired GP. Some of them had already gone through to help with first aid alongside the, the, um, the tourist staff as well. And they presented to us and told us what they knew about the injuries and asked how they could help. Was there, of the um, all the many people lying or sitting or either on the boat or off the boat, were there any that immediately worried you in terms of um, critical injuries or indicators that things just really weren't good? There were two, two people they wanted us to look at particularly quickly. There were also um, about eight to ten people who were what we call walking wounded, um, who were some of the ones who were sitting uh, on the pontoon as well. Um, so we really had to prioritise what we did at that stage. Hmm. Nat had some labels and some paperwork and did a quick run around to triage a lot of the patients. And I looked at the two that we'd been told were the sickest uh, to start with or the, the most severely injured. And the other thing that I did was knowing that we had um, uh, eight or ten people who uh, had injuries uh, but were able to walk, I asked the GP to have a look at those people and see if she was um, reasonably satisfied that they'd be okay to go in a seaplane back to Broome because that was already um, offered as a solution to get some of those injured people away from the scene and on their way to, to being treated. So she did that. I put a couple of IV lines in and started with some pain relief as well as uh, having a look at those 
the two more injured um, patients. I presume as the, the boat had hit the side of a gorge wall that people had been thrown within the boat to hit chairs or the side of the boat or other people. Is that where the injuries had come from? Yeah, we weren't able to find out a lot about what had actually happened uh, at the time. Also bearing in mind that um, the atmosphere was very calm, but these were people who were on, you know, a wonderful holiday and had started the morning quite early to do something wonderful and now were in pain and with their partners and friends injured. So we didn't stop to ask a lot about what had actually happened at the boat. We just looked at what we could see were the injuries. But I found out later that that was indeed what had happened, that things had come loose and people were piled onto each other. Of the, the people with the more severe injuries, there was one lady lying down who potentially had um, spinal injury. Um, she was a bit sore in the chest as well. Her airway was okay and she looked as though she had a fractured leg. So she needed some pain relief. She needed to be checked over, particularly with a uh, chest injury if someone's going to be flown. Uh, you need to make sure that they haven't got rib fractures with uh, a what we call a pneumothorax, um, anything that might make the their breathing uh, become very risky during flight. Mm. The altitude mm. because of that pressure, correct? Because when you when you fly, you you have a change of pressure, and that can impact lungs and and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that didn't seem to be the case, uh, which was good. We did keep her in spinal precautions, made sure she had a good uh, neck collar on uh, and started some pain relief. So she was one of the more severely injured. And there was another patient who was a, a woman in her um, 50s or so, and she was uh, still lying in a very uncomfortable position on the boat. She had, uh, I think, both legs broken quite a lot of blood there and um, really needed some some pain relief and to be got into a more comfortable position so we could then splint her legs and um, and pay some more attention to her wounds as well. So they were mm. our two initial priorities. But alongside of that, we had um, several people who clearly had fractured legs as well. And of course, with fractured legs, that means you, you can't move yourself. You really are dependent yeah. on being moved by other people. And uh, yeah. so that was quite a challenge to get people a little bit untangled. Wow. Did you leave um, some of those people in the boat, just continue with the ones that couldn't be moved and, and treat them in the boat? Or were you getting them onto stretches and trying to move them off the boat and onto the pontoon? Yeah, so the, the aim was to get people onto the pontoon and to get people underway as well. I guess what we had is we had a few seaplanes as our resources to uh, move people from the pontoon to the next spot. And they were going to be going to Coolan Island, is that right? And in, from Coolan Island then there was either seaplanes or more RFDS planes that were coming to then transport people. You were at the coalface and your job was to get people out of the mine, excuse the analogy, and then at the surface there was a lot of people then transporting people once you got them out. But really in such an isolated remote place, there's no roads in or out 
the only option you have is to get people off the boat onto a stretcher or onto a stretcher off the boat and then into a seaplane and then have the seaplane fly either to Broome or to Coolan Island where then they get into another plane or aircraft and get dispatched. Is that right? Yeah, you're spot on with that, Lana. The seaplane pilots who uh, fly tourists back and forth to um, the Horizontal Falls pontoon, as well as doing uh, plenty of other flying around the area, uh, were terrific. The senior one said to me, well, we can take the seats out of the back of a couple of these planes. We've done it before for stretcher patients from time to time, they said. Um, so we can take some of the seats out and we can take two patients at a time uh, lying down. So what do you think about that? And I was, yes, let's do that. Good. And so our priority was to get those two most severely injured people uh, underway first. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, they, um, they did the same to another seaplane as well, so that we had two available to shuttle people back and forth. The other plane with the walking wounded people was dispatched to go back to Broome get those people to Broome Hospital because even when people are walking and look like they might have fracture, you know, might be hobbling around a bit, might have fractured arm, a little bit of a bump on the head, uh, you can't assume that they're going to be fine. That's a lot of people who need a good thorough check out. So they were already off within um, about half an hour of when we arrived. Uh, straight to Broome and then with our stretcher patients we thought the best was to get them to cool an island to the fixed wing uh, aircraft to to head on from there. Gosh you're doing a great job of letting us walk in your footsteps that day. London, <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot going on and it's quite hard to uh, to untangle all of that in my mind <laughs> to tell you that we, I worked, know. we worked it's... like machines especially the uh, lovely nurse Natalie. She just worked like a machine there. Were the, were the patients, were they talking to you? How were they travelling? I think they'd actually been on the pontoon overnight. So this is the sort of trip that you dream of, you save up for. And these were people, um, I think they were nearly all um, Australian tourists, mostly not from Western Australia, from interstate. Uh, a lot were on uh, road trips around Australia and had... Um, popped their their vehicle and van somewhere and taken a couple of days out of that. So they'd flown up to the Horizontal Falls pontoon to stay overnight and then get up early and go on this wonderful thing. So this really wasn't happening for them now. Bearing that in mind, they were so calm, so positive and so helpful. These were mainly couples as well, so quite often you would have one person's um, quite severely injured and their partner not so badly injured. So we tried to keep couples together as well where we could. And we often had people looking out for each other as well. Uh, So when we'd start some pain relief, we'd buddy people up a little bit and say when they need some more, come and let us know. Nat and I tried to keep our side of things as well as calm as possible. We're used to working in um, fairly stressful situations But we all knew, all our injured patients and the staff and myself and Natalie, we all knew that we we had a job to do that was going to take some time, but that everything would be okay and we just had to work our way through it. And that was very much the attitude that we we all took. That's really good. And, of course, 
Now, you arrived, about what time of day did you arrive at that pontoon? Uh, it was between 9 and 9.30 in the morning. And normally with an evacuation, an aeromedical evacuation of a patient, you know, you can sort of say, all right, good. I've spoken to some pilots and doctors and they say, yes, you know, this was a critical thing. We're going to land. We're going to be out of there within half an hour, 45 minutes or so and, and be off. But when you've got so many injured patients... There was a limiting factor as well, wasn't there, that you really had to have every single patient aeromedically removed from the scene before the sun went down, um, which being May would have been five or so. So that really means just even from a safety perspective, you've got a ticking clock there with so many people that are injured and needing to be transported either to the local Broome Hospital or to further afield to a tertiary hospital either in Darwin or Perth. You have to somehow get everybody off before that sun goes down. Was that something that was driving you and Natalie as you were working through the most critical? Yeah, absolutely. So we needed to keep things moving. So we couldn't stop for a long time to sort out. We needed to get a quick overview of what was happening and then really start the process as soon as we could. So that was our priority was to get our two most severely injured people onto a seaplane and I think we had room for um, uh, one or two of their partners, uh, so two sitting people as well, I think. And I went on that seaplane as well, back to Coolan Island. So we got that part going uh, as a priority. Meanwhile, Natalie was um, uh, sorting through as much as she could with the rest and then working out who would be the next people to go out. So we needed to put intravenous lines into... Um, about 10 or 12 of those patients so that we could give them um, intravenous pain relief, uh, eventually antibiotics as well uh, for those with compound fractures and also just have the IV in case we needed to give them fluids. So, um, and at the same time we needed strong re uh, pain relief for some of the others. So. Um, I had a quick chat to our, our uh, little team there and said, who can put in IV lines and who could give out some of the strong pain relief and just keep good records of, of who's been given what as well because it's so important that you don't overdose somebody or underdose them uh, and keep yeah. a, a close eye on that. So they uh, very ably helped with quite a lot of that as well as splinting of some limbs. So I headed off uh, with our first two injured patients to Coolan Island straight from the pontoon. So we loaded our, our couple of patients onto what we call scoop stretcher. So that's like a spinal board type of thing. Not, not hugely comfortable for our, our lovely patients, but they're very stoical. And they were then on the floor of the seaplane. And it's very important that things are tied down properly. So those stretchers were tied in and they were seat belted into the stretchers. And our two accompanying people were seat belted in as well. Um, I was just able to keep an eye on them from a seat just next to them as well. When we landed Coolan Island, uh, we're at the big airstrip there near the passenger terminal and a second RFDS aircraft was already up there and the Coolan Island clinic paramedic and uh, a whole lot of the first responders had also been mustered to help, uh, which was fantastic. So what they'd done is they had repurposed the passenger terminal there into a big first aid centre. Fantastic work wow. they did. They cleared all the seats aside and we had room to put our stretches in. 
But the first part was actually getting the uh, stretcher patients off the seaplane. So when you land a seaplane onto a hard runway instead of in the sea, the spot where you sit, the floor of the plane, is something like oh, two, two and a half metres above the ground level. And these are people who are committed to being on a stretcher. Right? They can't sort of be wriggled out because they had fractured legs and possibly um, uh, back injuries as well. So they needed to be brought out on the stretcher. And the team there had made a, a good system of platforms uh, so that we could safely lift those people out on the stretchers well above shoulder height uh, and bring them down and then get them into the passenger terminal. Yes, that was an amazing job. That's amazing. I'm always amazed at the ingenuity of, of people in remote areas. You get presented with problems like how do we get these patients who are on a stretcher and well above two metres above our, you know, above the ground, how do we get them out safely? It's amazing the way, the solutions that people can come up with <laughs> using yeah. whatever is around, using some brain cells to figure out, well, how can we do this using what we have? So that's very clever. I'm, I'm so glad they managed to figure that out. Yeah, it's that, um, yeah, figuring it out, the can-do attitude. And I guess um, the first responders up at the mine site, they're usually, they've usually got other jobs and then um, one of their their duties is if there's an emergency that they need to be able to drop what else they're doing and, and help out on the mine site. Uh, but what yeah. they were doing was great. This was for the community in general. I don't think they would have worked through how to load people off seaplanes in the past. It's not <laughs> no, I don't think it would have been in their repertoire. How no. do we get people off seaplanes? It's never anything that I've ever thought about before. And I'm sure since that was the, your first day on a seaplane, I bet you that was a, a new experience for you as well to figure out, oh, my yeah. gosh, how do we disembark? So we safely got those two people off. We had at that stage, we had... Um, a second broom crew was already up there. So we were able to get a quick powwow to say what was happening on the pontoon because there was quite limited uh, communications from there, um, just one satellite phone, uh, and also make a decision. And those two more injured, uh, more severely injured people, uh, it was decided to start them, uh, get them moving uh, on one of the aircraft first um, to go back to Broome. Now, we were aware that most of our patients were going to need to go to a tertiary hospital. So the way it works in WA is that what we call a regional hospital is uh, much smaller than what you'd have in, say, Queensland or New South Wales. So there's no orthopaedic surgery, not a lot of trauma surgery, no spinal services. So we're pretty certain that most of our uh, patients were going to need to go to Perth or, or Darwin. And then I needed to get back with the seaplanes as soon as we'd offloaded our patients and handed them over to those at Coolin Island. I needed to get back with the seaplanes so that we could start moving some other people. Once we got out there again, we um, started moving people again. So I think we had the next four ready to go then because there was the there were two that were already loaded onto a second seaplane and then we were able to put some more people in that one. You've, so you've got two great flight nurses and yourself. Was it an improved scene on your return back? It was much the same but improved for sure. So what Nat had done um, is she had labelled, she had labels for people, which was very good. She had name and injury labelled onto most people. 
which was great. <laughs> we had um, intravenous lines into most of our patients and we'd started with pain relief for most people. A lot of the first aid had been done, but there was still more to do um, of moving people safely. So, yeah, we all got to work again as a team. So I think Nat had hardly stopped for breath. Yeah, she'd done a great job. And, of course, those other, um, the other tourists who were, were helping. Um, you know, at some stage they needed to go because all the people who were, um, who'd come up for the next boat ride, which had been cancelled, just needed to be got away from the scene, back to Broome to continue on their day without a boat ride yeah. to Horizontal Falls. Yeah, and without sitting there over watching and being the spectators for a, an ongoing disaster relief. Yeah, absolutely. It was really good that the, the setup there gave some separation, but they would have just been waiting and it, it probably was pretty awful for them as well. We had two more ready to go in a seaplane and another two to, to be loading on, so that, that side of things were going. And we were also aware of a couple of other ways that, that some of our patients could be moved from the pontoon. So shall I tell you about that? Even more yeah, yeah, well, aircraft. More, <laughs> more aircraft. Tell me about the other aircraft that came to help. Because it's so many people. Did we ever get a total of how many people were actually injured? I think we had 28 patients. Wow. I think we had that's, 28. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Ten on stretchers. Two ended up going on the big helicopter. Ten uh, went on a seaplane to Broome. They were sort of walking wounded. And eight yeah. went as walking wounded with RFDS as well. So when sometimes wow. you've got the stretcher patients, you've got an extra um, seat there, which will be used for a relative yeah. or a sitting Squeeze patient. somebody in. So I think it was 28 <laughs> all up. Yeah. Tell me about the big helicopter. One of the other uh, things that we're involved with in Broome is uh, working with a company called PHI who provide helicopter services to the offshore oil and gas uh, platforms, which are about oh, 200 miles off, off Broome. And so they fly over the sea a lot. So they take the workers back and forth to the oil and gas places. And then as well as that, and this is where we're involved, they run a search and rescue helicopter and medivac um, uh, mm. service as well. So if someone is injured or ill on one of the uh, oil rig or platforms out there, uh, we'll go out on the uh, medically equipped helicopter, pick them up. So they're long range though, and they're really big helicopters. It's called a Sikorsky S90 or 92. So um, they were on standby um, because one of the other things that they do as a, um, a side service to the community is that they're um, for marine search and rescue or even onshore search and rescue, they're occasionally used as well to winch people from uh, difficult uh, situations on boats. So they were keen to help. And they did eventually come as well. But we knew that uh, they wouldn't be able to land there on the pontoon, which the helicopter people knew that as well. Uh, they wouldn't be able to land there, but they would need to winch, winch people up if they're going to do that. And that means that you need to then uh, get, them, get things ready for them to arrive, which means right. making sure there's nothing that's going to be damaged or um, uh, by the downdraft of air. So that actually happened later on in the piece because there was so much else to be sorted out. But we knew that they were on standby. But the other thing was um, that one of the smaller 
tourist helicopters. Now, they have little platforms that they can land on at the pontoon, and so one of those turned up. I'm not quite sure how that worked, but they were suddenly there and ready to help uh, take another couple of patients across to Kulin Island. Uh, so that was uh, another very welcome service. I think they just did one run. They might have done two. Mm. So we had... Um, Seaplanes, small helicopter, big helicopter, all sorts of things happening. You might wonder, um, why did we not just take the boat across to Kulin Island? But that boat was damaged. They do have other boats as well. But really, the uh, I think the landing facility and everything there would have been really hard work getting people on and off. The tides are huge in that area, which is what gives the horizontal falls their amazing water flow, but also yeah. makes that um, boat travel isn't all that simple. As the day progressed and you were just slowly offloading more and more people from that pontoon, did it end up getting down to the wire as you were looking at the time and saying, we've still got six here and we've got to get them off? in the next like how did that afternoon progress as the as the day got longer and the uh, that sun started to dip in the sky and you, we've really we can't leave them here overnight what happened as that day progressed we were pretty sure that was all going to work out okay but it was it, it really depended on everything going everything going swimmingly, um, you know, everything just being able to keep on going. We, ha- we did have to keep taking stock of our numbers, though, and that's not so easy to do when people are all distributed around in that sort of setup. So I do know at one stage uh, I thought we'd moved quite a few people and Nat and I went and did a count and we still had 12 more people to move. <laughs> You had moved a lot of people. We had moved a lot, but there were still a lot of patients to be moved. Uh, I think probably the reassuring was that was that there were maybe six of those were stretcher patients, and the others uh, could walk or um, could be winched up in a sitting sort of a winch onto the helicopter or whatever was needed. Yeah. So uh, as Rachel and I took the next, escorted the next four stretcher and probably four sitting patients back on the the next two two seaplanes, we went across there back to Coolin and there were a couple more patients that arrived, I think, with the small helicopter. So with the same unloading of patients as described before with the platforms and lots of people, we went into the, pa- uh, the passenger facility and it was just amazing the setup they'd had. But even before that, uh, at that stage, we had, I think, two of our RFDS jets had arrived. Um, oh, so wow. it was quite the RFDS presence there up at the airstrip. So anyway, um, a whole lot of extra RFDS equipment had come up as well, uh, just intravenous fluids, dressings, uh, antibiotics, all sorts of things like that, extra pain relief. So that was all set up there and also the uh, Kulin Island people had broken out some of their um, their first aid equipment as well. We had um, the aircraft stretchers were off the aircraft and in the area because of course we've got to get people onto the aircraft stretchers and stabilised enough to go on the plane ride to Perth. So the jet was going to take people direct to Perth and that's about three hours of actual flying time, maybe three and a half. So a few things need to be done. People need to be cleaned up, pain relief happening, another more thorough look over to see if there are any injuries that need stabilising before they move. 
And then less than straightforward problems such as toileting. Right. Of course, yeah. Which is I was going to ask you also about food because as the day is progressing, you know, food and water become the other thing. So, um, of course, for our patients, knowing that quite a few would, um, you know, be having surgery fairly soon after they got to their destination, we didn't want to give them too much food, but you also don't want to starve people who need to be. So you can make that decision as you look at, the, at different people and what their injuries are. It was hot, actually. Out there on the pontoon, it would have been 30-odd degrees and, you know, some shade there, but fairly humid as well. And so quite easy to get quite dehydrated. We could direct who who could have fluid and how much. Uh, We didn't want to give people too much intravenous fluid because you don't want to fill people's bladders. And then they're on a plane for three hours trying to get back to Jandicott. How did you manage the bathroom facilities with with people on stretchers? How does that work? Well, we're we're pretty good with that because that's what we do a lot of the time. But there are choices. There are bedpans. There are catheters. And there's hobbling people up to a a, a toilet facility. But of course, all of that, it sounds so easy, but it takes a lot of time, as does things like dressing wounds and things. And and we knew we needed to keep things things moving. Wow. All hands on deck. That just sounds like an absolute hive of activity as well. Tell me, as that afternoon progressed, how did the day end for you? I had a couple of seaplane trips, bit of time on the pontoon. There was one seaplane, I think, went direct back to Broome at the end of the day. The helicopter, the big Sikorsky um, PHI helicopter, had winched a couple of people off. I, I wasn't there to see that. I would have actually quite liked to see that, but I couldn't stay to watch. I had other work to do. Um, you were busy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But they, they're just so amazing and professional and it's, it's quite a big deal. Anyway, so, um, so I left when there were a few people left to go um, and I knew Natalie, plus the Horizontal Falls staff, was sort of uh, finishing things up there and Nat went back in a seaplane direct to Broome. And we took, I think it was just one patient on the last jet to Broome, plus a whole lot of gear as well. And so we, uh, in the early evening, uh, flew back with our last stretcher patient through to Broome. And then he went into Broome Hospital, and I think he probably had a secondary transfer the next day because he had a fractured leg. So I was finished with all of that. I was home by about 8.30 at night, but my colleagues down in Perth were working for quite a lot longer than that. When you finally got home at the end of that day, having looked after 26 people and gotten them to a hospital either in Broome or further afield. Did you get home and find yourself totally exhausted and just ready for a drink and and a flop into a couch or were you just adrenaline still running and pumping and and sort of lying there reflecting on what a bizarre day you'd had? Look, there's a mixture of both. I think from the time that we landed in Broome, I think Rachel and I were on the last plane there and we had just one patient to hand over, a lot of gear to sort. There was a wonderful team of nursing and medical staff who said, just go home now, you've done enough today, uh, we'll, sort, <laughs> we'll take it from here, we'll sort everything out. And so there was a lot of uh, unpacking and resorting because of course uh, life goes on 
We knew yeah. that it had already been a busy day and the next day was going to be busy. Uh, we have a limited amount of equipment and, uh, and gear, so that all had to be ready, ready to go for the next flights. Yeah. So I, I was able to go home uh, feeling that I'd had a huge day working with some amazing people. I had a feeling that everyone was going to be okay from that and that was a really good feeling. I did know that from talking to people through the day that a lot of them were on road trips around Australia and I thought, well, that's going to be awful for them. They'll have a lot of things to sort out. That even if you have what might be seem to be a fairly simple broken leg, for example, if you were on a road trip around Australia with the caravan and the big four-wheel drive, you can't continue that. You've got to work out what else you're going to do instead. So I was very conscious that everyone was going to be okay, but there were a lot of people who were going to have some big changes. Yeah. Thank you so much for walking us through that amazing day. When I hear a story like this, it just it really brings home to me how when you're working in remote Australia and whether that's in the centre, you know, red hot centre or whether it's in places such as this up in northern Western Australia or elsewhere, you really rely on all of the community coming together to be able to work as a team to manage an incident or an accident or a disaster when it occurs. It's We call it mateship in Australia. It's such a, a warming story to that degree. There were so many people within the RFDS that were involved, you um, and the flight nurses, but also the pilots and then the many other teams and then the larger team back in Jandicott in Perth, as well as the broom team doing their thing. And then you've got the mining first responders and you've got the search and rescue big helicopter and the small helicopters and the seaplanes and even the bystanders that just happened to be there and had some skills. Isn't it amazing how we we come together in times of crisis and just figure out how to make it work? Yeah, Ilana, it really is. I think you've put that very well. Something I've reflected on and um, Nat and Rachel and I were talking about it is this is the sort of thing we practice for. We don't very often, it's only maybe every five to ten years that we get um, an incident that involves more than about five people injured in one go. So we do practice for it. But of course, every scenario is different and you could never practice for exactly this. You can all talk about it, you can debrief after it, you can have a think about what else could happen. But it's so much is uh, just dependent on people being able to, on the day, step up and help yeah. out. Yeah. I have so much respect for all those people in the tourist, injury, uh, tourist industry and the mining industry and just all those bystanders as well who um, did such an amazing job to help. I agree. Thank you so much, Sally. You've got a, a much well-earned day off, so I think I should leave you. <laughs> to go and enjoy the rest of your day off but thank you so much for walking us through what happened and explaining how such an accident with so many injuries is dealt with and I'm really glad that everybody was gotten to where they needed to go and it was all okay in the end. Yeah thanks very much Lana it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast please share it with family and friends and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. 
And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928 We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Yeah.